At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email CampbellLawReporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. And we're back to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle. I have the pleasure of talking to a guru in all things accounting and finance and just all things about business. That's what I say. My guest today, Jason Deshaies. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing well. Now, you have all these acronyms and all these other I have a ton. letters. I have more letters behind my name than in front of it, I think. Yeah, you almost have enough letters to make another name. I, uh, I could. It would be a good name because they're all pretty much A's. Tell us a little bit about your background. That's why I mentioned those uh, acronyms because you're pretty loaded in that regard. Yeah. Uh, so I am by original trade a CPA, still am. Uh, so that's certified public accountant. Um, I've been practicing since about 2003, so pushing on 20 years at this point. Uh, I'm also a PFS, which is the AICPA's uh, personal financial specialist credential, a CFP, which is a certified financial professional and or financial planner. And then I'm in the process of another designation, but I don't have it, so I can't say it. But it's, um, it's a, a CKA, which is a certified kingdom advisor, which is a financial professional who operates their practice within a biblical worldview. So yeah, I have a lot of experience in the tax and financial planning area. Uh, my general business background is I've serviced a lot of small business owners, um, you know, closely held into enterprises that could be a couple million revenue, could be a couple hundred thousand, a couple tens of thousand, uh, and worked with a lot of law practices in terms of both from working with them in their practice, but also working with their clients collaboratively so we can you know, make sure they have good outcomes for their clients. Awesome. And that's exactly what I want to plow into today and just kind of pick out your expertise is people starting a business and, you know, for our uh, majority of our listeners, uh, people starting law firms and specifically on kind of debunking the myths that can be associated with starting a business mm-hmm. when, and on the financial realm, right? Because we all know that on the law side, that's their own problems, right? You're not here to talk about that. You're here to give us in, insight on your expertise in regards to all things finance and how to set up a great infrastructure so you can actually do the billing that makes you money. Yeah, go for um, it. Before, before we go on, the first softball question, what is the first step? If you want to create, if somebody says, hey, Jason, I'm starting a law firm, what would you say is the first thing to do? Well, I would say it's getting the corporate organization is the first thing. And you want something that is scalable, um, and something can grow and shift a little bit. So there is an opportunity to go be a regular sole proprietor, right? You can just be Stephen Dinkle, you know, attorney at law. And the problem with that is you don't have much choice with that. It's, that's going to be for tax purposes. It's one thing. Um, it exposes you to risk. And so, which is a legal issue, which y'all know that. But, you know, generally going for either a PLC or some PC where you've got a a little bit of separation there. And then depending on what you want to do is you make choices at that point about the type of entity for tax purposes that makes sense for what you're planning to do. Are you planning to have, you know, partners eventually? Are you going to have staff people? Um, those are the kind of questions you need to do, but you need to have that corporate organization set first. And you don't want to like skip through that because if you do, you're going to go through a headache process later when you have to get new bank accounts and new EIN and all that stuff. Uh, but that's, that's usually step one. And then step two is finding a little help. And unless you happen to be a tax attorney who used to be a CPA, I would definitely encourage you to find a CPA or an accountant that can help navigate kind of, of the initial steps of things. Because there's a lot of administrative parts to owning a business. And I can tell you, I just helped a client 
uh, this morning, actually, you know, talking about payroll because he has employees, Bob business uh, is a dentist. And so he bought a business and we had to go through, okay, here are the steps you have to do as a business owner, right? You got to, you got to check their I nines. You got to set up payroll. You have to have all these ID numbers with various government entities. You've got to have all these things, and you have to have it done before you start the practice, or really close because you got to pay people pretty fast. Um, go figure. People will wait around for two months. Yeah, people want their money. Yeah, they want cash. Uh, they're not doing it for free. So, it, by talking through that, you can kind of get the infrastructure built around it. Okay, who's doing your accounting? If you're smart, it's not you. Uh, again, unless you're a recovering CPA who knows how to do it, I would not suggest doing your own books because it's a it's a bit of a slog for most. So people. we'll we'll get there, and I want to talk yeah. about that specifically because um, so many people think that they're saving money when they do that, mm-hmm. and, and in reality, it's something different. So I, I know I want to pick that. We'll apart. talk about that later. Then, so there's yeah, but there's other things like you know whether are you going to have employees early on or not. Sometimes people start firms from spinning out of other firms, right? And they, so they, but they take employees with them. They take a paralegal, they take an assistant they, and, or an office manager. And you got to start playing for that. And then you got to think about where you want to go with it. Are you going to be, and I always believe strongly in starting with the end in mind. So if you plan on making a lifestyle practice for life, like it's going to be you and maybe a couple of little employees and you're just happy to go that way. Cool. That's a great way to kind of plan for that. If you're planning on scaling it up, adding partners, growing it, that's a different story. But you got to start with that because if you don't, you're going to do all these course corrections later, which are a little bit of a headache, but very expensive too. So, so when you're putting together the infrastructure of the corporate infrastructure, we we have studied, you know, all the different type of filings that we have to do, or depending on the type of you know corporation partnership, all that sort of stuff. But that's a whole different realm when it comes to the tax liabilities um, for that uh, entity. And we don't really cover that too, too much. Now, what are the big things that you see in regards to that pertinent to law firms? Because sole prop is a whole different realm than a S corp or a partnership. What are the type of things that you want to do in picking what's right for you? Is it, I hate to use this term, you know, on each fact by fact. And that's scenario. the best tax answer anyone can give you. It depends. And that's yeah, same with law school. <laughs> yeah. It depends on what your circumstances are. Right. So, um, you know, each, each model for tax purposes has pros and cons. Right. So if you're a sole proprietor, that's for the pro side, it's super easy, right? You file a schedule C with your personal tax return. There's no other separate filings necessary. If you don't have employees, you literally, just accumulate your income and expenses. And everything is taxed based at your individual rate, right? Your individual rate. And um, what is often a surprise factor for folks is that when you are self-employed, you are on the hook for um, self-employment tax, which is effectively the employer and employee portions of Social Security and Medicare. And you're used to, if you've worked at any job, that your employer is paying for half of that. That's about seven and a half percent, a little more, 7.65. And so then now with self-employed, you get to pay both halves because you're the employer. And that is usually a bit of a surprise because when you're looking at 15%, let's say you make, um, let's say you're doing really well, you make $100,000 in your first year doing this. That's $15,000 in tax right off the bat, not income tax, just social security and Medicare taxes. And so what happens is it really surprises people because like, oh, man, I didn't really expect it to be that much. And then you have to do estimate payments because guess what? No one's throwing money in your in the system for you. So there's a lot of this self-managing you have to do. Um, if you decide to have something like an S-corporation where you could have payroll, you have different- And an, an S-corp is just really a tax declaration. It's a tax it's, thing. Yeah. yeah. It's not like, uh, and you'll have clients who will come up and say, I, I have an S-corp. Like you do, huh? And, and I'm sure from a legal perspective, it's frustrating because you're like, are you an LLC? Are you a corporation? Like, no, I'm an S-corp. And there's no legal S-corp to my knowledge. It's a- Because you you have people throw all these, oh, I heard this and I can do this. There's really fact, you know, sensitive scenarios to where you would want to elect to be a sole prop. Maybe it's better or to be an S-corp. So what makes the S-corp tax-wise, right? Because it's a tax dec- declaration. What's the benefits? What's the difficulties compared to just running it from a, uh, and electing to be a sole proprietor? 
So an S-Corp allows you to have multiple owners, so you could add a partner if you wanted to. Sole proprietorship has to be one owner, and that's it. Um, you can have payroll as, an as the owner, and so you can be on payroll like your paralegal would be or your um, you know, assistant would be. And the nice thing about that is that you can then leverage the payroll tax system. So you can pay progressively that Social Security Medicare tax. You're still going to pay it in some fashion, but it's being done more progressively through a system that just takes the money and pays it to the government. Um, same with withholdings for federal and state income tax that will get done through payroll. Also, for planning purposes, it really does offer some flexibility in terms of like, let's say you, you um, I do this a lot with clients. We do year-end bonuses. We figure out what profit truly is going to be. And we want to put in just enough, just the amount of taxes that's owed, but not excessively like large or small amount of band circumstances, but like it's better than estimate payments where estimate payments, you have to throw in money every quarter and you're like having to recalculate it and figure out, okay, well, this quarter was high, maybe the next quarter is low. Um, it's a little bit of a pain. So I, I like using it for that flexibility purpose. Um, and the other benefit is, you know, you get to decide your exposure for Social Security and Medicare. Now, it's got to be reasonable. You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. So you can't Reasonable salary. Pay, I make two, after paying everybody else, I make 200 grand. And I'm going to pay myself 20 grand uh, as an attorney and a good attorney. That you're going to... You're going to get some people knocking on your door that yeah. you don't want to be talking to. And so let's say you get, let's say it's, uh, you pay, you make a hundred, you know, $150,000 and you pay yourself a hundred thousand dollars, which is uh, reasonable for the type of us, an, an attorney you'd have. And the other $50,000 is considered S corp earnings. Well, that S corp earning as a, under current law is not subject to self-employment and Medicare taxes. So you, you got to pay income tax on that, but you're not paying that 15%. That you would have normally had to pay in sole proprietorship. And that's the benefit of the S Corp. Yeah, you can, yeah. So there's definitely got some perks there. You still see people using C corporations. Those are the when you think of like Amazons, they're separate. And those are those are big entities because we did learn that those get double taxed, right? Yeah, and double tax is a is a thing that most people don't understand really what that means. But what what it means is that the company will pay tax on its profit. The corporation does. It'll pay its corporate it pays its tax. corporate tax. So it says you make $200,000. And let's say then it distributes money to you. That's not through payroll. So not distributions are not a deduction for corporate tax purposes. And so what happens is you get $200,000. And then that $200,000 comes out to you as an, as an owner, as a dividend. Well, you get to pay income tax on that. So the same dollar was taxed once at the corporate level, once at the personal level, which is the double tax part. And now it's not saying that a C Corp isn't bad per se. It's just there. No, it's, it's just it depends on the scenario. Many law firms are actually organized as C corporations. And the reason for that is it offers better benefits exposure. So people can have nicer benefit plans that the owners can take, act, take benefit for. Um, it allows pretty unique allocation of income because it's all done through W-2 wages. So like if you've got a high producing attorney that's just killing it and they get $700,000 a year, great. You can pay them, that partner, $700,000 and the kind of lower producing senior partner who's just kind of two steps away from retirement can get a hundred grand or something. And so you can, you can play, um, you know, whatever math you need to make work, it just runs through compensation, which is how you kind of direct people's profit to them. Not and the last... The last, yeah, the, that, that's, see, there's, there's functionality to all these type of entities, which is great um, because it's, you know, not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And the last one that I want to touch base on um, it just in general from a tax perspective is partnerships because yep. you hear that all the time and people sometimes can form partnerships without even really knowing it. Right. Yep. Um, and so what does that mean from a tax perspective on layman terms? Partnerships look more like sole proprietors for tax purposes, it, except for they have multiple owners. And so what happens is you don't get a wage, you get guaranteed payments. And you may hear in law firms in particular, they'll talk about it as their draw. Um, so you get a draw in partners in legal partnerships in particular, you may have income partners and you may have equity partners. The income partners um, do not get usually an allocation of the overall profit. They just get their profit, right? And I was actually just working with a client of mine who's got He's a partner, he's an income partner in a law practice, and he files in four states. And all he gets is one very large number on K1, and that is his money. And then he doesn't share in the profits of the company because he's not an equity partner. 
Um, and that's fine. It's, um, but you're still subject to self-employment in Medicare. So you usually have to do estimate payments every quarter. Um, and you are still subject to the requirements of whatever the partnership files. And so um, if you're coming in, if you're starting your own firm, usually it's a little easier because you're usually only filing in one state, the state you live in. But as you grow, maybe you have an office in South Carolina and because you have a buddy who you want to be a partner with and you guys kind of join forces. Well, now you're filing in two states because you have economic activity in two. So that's the thing is things scale and, and you're, you're still subject to that. And that's the same with an S-Corp or a partner. Anything that has a flow through, you'll have to pay in various states based on where you have work. So pretty so, much what I'm hearing, this is what I'm hearing. And, and uh, I know this is, you're kind of, you're, you're, it's a loaded, loaded statement, but people, when you start a law firm, call someone like Jason, you need to make sure that you're setting yourself up, right? Going through that step one to make mm-hmm. sure that you're uh, knowing what exposure you have because you're a lawyer and you may not be a tax lawyer or a CPA at the same time. So you may need to, you know, tap somebody on the shoulder. Yeah. And it's, it's not one of those things that if you were to do it, right. If you were to say, okay, I want to get this thing going. It's, it's not a big deal to have a consultation because usually those kind of things may be an hour or two at a time um, and you get set up right. And then you can, then you can grow with it. And, um, and you want to do that early on, not at the end, because when you're at the end, then you're kind of having to like scramble to see if it made sense. And you end up with like, you get what you get. And sometimes you have some flexibility with that. Sometimes you don't. And it's one of those you don't want to. I'm always going to kind of just, hey, if you just have the conversation early. You take care of it and all works out just fine. And- well, you're touching on something that I want to go into actually next. So that's kind of nice. So we already have it set up and you go into what you're doing right after that. Mm-hmm. Do you want employees? You know, what are you going to do with your books? Because as you bring in, you know, bring in money, you got to, especially with the, um, responsibility of an attorney, having it in trust and all the rules that go with that. That's, you know, that can get us in a lot of trouble. So I know a lot of small business owners, not even just attorneys, but a lot of small business owners try to think that they're going to do the, the cool thing by, oh, I, I'm going to do my own books and I'm going to save all this money because I don't have to hire somebody or um, engage with a company to do it but it takes them a long time to do it or, you know, they don't have the time to do it all the time on, on a consistent basis. And then, like you said, at the end, they're running into problems. What would you say to the people who think you're not talking about their skill of doing it? Cause they probably can. Mm-hmm. Right. But what would you advise on people who think that's the right way to go? So there's a couple of things. There's, this is an interesting time in our world because um, the access to DYI technology is becoming much more prominent. Uh, and that's that the software that professionals use, for example, QuickBooks, is freely accessible to the public, right? And you got TurboTax telling you everyone's a tax account, which is not true. Um, but well, I, I think what ends up happening, especially if you're in a, a, a white collar industry like the law profession, is that you make money by doing things with your brain, things you're good at, things you're trained at, and usually you paid pretty handsomely for it, right? You know, uh, billable rates for law firms can, let's say, 200, 300, 4 bucks an hour. So, you know, decent amount of money. So, well, I, I took the approach a long time ago in my own practice is that if I could outsource something and convert it, the, the, the effort I put into it, into savings for my time, what could I do with that time otherwise? And how could I generate something with it? So this was back, I think my billable rate was like 250 bucks an hour. And I got to a point where I'm like, okay, if I go and do this, it takes me 10 hours a month to do that. That's 2,500 bucks of effort. That I lost. I, I could have done client work and made that much more. How much would it have cost me? Well, maybe that thing was only four or 500 bucks a month. And so I converted 10 hours of my time into either billable work that I can charge people for and make more money, or I just had more of my time back. Right. And that's important too, because there's a very finite resource you can't generate more of. Yep. And you were like, that's 
a totally logical use of time. And so you swap it. And um, so I think for a law firm, I mean, let's say a bookkeeper is even five or $600 a month. How many hours a month do you have to work in your, in your profession, which you can bill for, to pay that? And how much time would you have normally used for it? And I think by pivoting that and saying, oh, I can, that is all it takes. And, and again, especially in this industry, it's very easy recovery of time. It's like two hours a month to pay for this whole thing. And I have to do it. And it's done right. Mm-hmm. It's done. I have to do it. I mean, you have still have to do a part of it. Like you have to either provide records or clarity to yeah. transactions. But if you build a relationship with a good uh, bookkeeper or accountant, they start understanding that. And then the, the demand on your time is much less every month. So I think it's one of those things where it's, it seems like you're saving money, but because you can bill for your time and your mental capacities and everything, that the trade-off is usually much more significant where you will get more out of it by, convert, by, by giving it up than you will by trying to save it by, by not paying somebody. Yeah, what are you going to do, bill yourself? <laughs> yeah, and unless you're a, literally an accountant that became a lawyer and knew how to do it, that's Two separate entities building itself, maybe. <laughs> I mean, we're, we, I'm a CPA. I don't do our company's books. I started doing just again, but we, we farm that out because we know by having someone whose job it is to just focus on it, it gets done on a regular basis. It's not like the 87th job you're going to do. And as a practice owner, you have a ton of things to worry about, right? So you've got, let's say you have two employees even. Yeah, I was just gonna about. I, I was just gonna about to ask how does that how does all this work with bringing in employees too? Well, so so again, like a employees um, is not a bad thing by any. In fact, it's a great way to leverage, right? If you want to grow, there's a, a sheer capacity to your ability to produce so much work, and so to be able to, uh, to grow your business, you usually need to have some other help, and because. Um, this is associate attorneys, this is paralegals. You can bill more for than what you pay them. So therefore you make more money on, you know, on the Delta, right? Yeah. And so, but that, you know, more money, more problems, right? And so you end <laughs> up in situations where, okay, now you have to put on your HR hat. And unless you're an employment lawyer, you may not really understand all the employment law ramifications of having people working for you. And then you start thinking about recruiting those people and how do you find them? Do you, you know, what kind of person are you going to hire? And for what role? I've seen a lot of law firms hire nice people or people who are are, uh, talented in some fashion, but they're not suited to do internal accounting, be an office manager. Uh, It's probably the most common thing I've ever seen in law firms is that the paralegal is also the office manager who's also like the assistant. And so they do like everything. And they usually are not good at one or two of those jobs, of the four that they have. And then it's like this cleanup process. And so if if you really kind of, you got to look at, do I hire the right people? Are those people functional in their jobs? Are they, are they, are, are their skill set equipped for the role we're going to have? That's a, that's a big thing. But then you get into stuff like how you pay them, right? You have a payroll processor. Some people think, oh, I'll just cut checks, right? That's how it works. No, you got to put, you know, there's like five government entities usually anytime we want their share of your They want to touch that cash. Yeah. They want, they, you know, the feds want something, the state wants something, not just one state department, but usually two or three, because there's the, the tax department wants their withholding, the unemployment department wants their yeah, uh, and I, you know, and sometimes municipalities get some money too. I have to go. I've been you know, this one client that I referred to earlier. It's got dental practice. I got to call like a a, a a township in Pennsylvania to find out the one little tax they have for the school district that the employees have to pay for, but we have to withhold it from them. And it's just all these little things, and every jurisdiction is a little different. And so, unless you plan spending hours and hours researching it. It's just best to offsource and find a good person to equip with you who can say, I do this every day. I can set up payroll like that. I can get you moving just like that. And I can get your books up and, and, and have it done so you can run your business. That's important. That's the important thing about being a business owner. It's not about 
hey, how can you nickel and dime someone out of something and get like get everything whittled down to like no overhead is a lot of times it's just about being smart with that and saying, yeah, I can make more money if I spend a little money on, on professional services. And admittedly, as, as, as lawyers, you go, I, I like it when people spend money on people like me who know what they're doing. You get annoyed when clients... When they go to, the, to Google JD? Yeah, they ask, they ask their buddy on Facebook, hey, I can get an employment contract from you, right? Like, you can just, like, what does yours look like? I'll just do the same thing for mine. Or I'll get this lease and I'll have, I'll just copy one from LegalZoom or from some other thing. It's like, it's annoying. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that your skill set as a lawyer is just as important as other people's skill set to service you. Just like you want to be service other people, you need to get some service from other professionals. And that all brings just into the reality of that you're there as an attorney to be an attorney. You're not there to be the, the bookkeeper, the CPA and stuff like that. That's why it's probably better um, to outsource that out. And especially when you break it down to what your experience was, is that, you know, you said, what was it? 10 hours a week for your, your scenario. And then you could outsource it for 500. Well, that's a, either a net savings of $2,000 or the equivalent of $2,000 potentially for you to make with that extra time. Like that just seems like a no brainer. And it's also just staying out of trouble, right? Like, I don't want to get in the crosshairs of the IRS. I don't want to get in the crosshairs of an employment agency or things like that. And if you've got someone who can, like, hey, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to take care of this for you. Um, it's important. And, and all you have to do is answer maybe a few questions on, hey, was this, you know, this expenditure, was this, you know, a business related blah, 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 or whatever. That's well, a lot easier than trying to navigate the seven different entities that won some of your, you know, billable money that's coming. Well, and, and, you know, I, I've talked to firms, I, you know, a lot of what we do is we build in coaching, a little bit of coaching into our engagement. So we're, we're not just doing the tax return, but we're planning at year end. We're planning throughout the year. We're having conversations about what are you doing in the business, right? Because, you know, law firms like any other business can go have ups and downs and you have cycles and you can have growth opportunities and as long as you've got someone to kind of, you know, a council that can bounce off things, there's going to be things, you know, oh, man, I didn't think about that. I didn't know that was going to be a problem. Or um, it's just, so it's important to have that kind of relationship because it's easy. It's really easy to basically phone it in and just do what you did last year. And the accounting professional called Sally, same as last year. Uh and it's really easy to say, you know, that's how we set it up. It was fine. I see that with like retirement accounts. Uh, simples were a big thing. Um, and simple IRAs are theoretically like an easy retirement account. It's a little harder than you think, but it was relatively cheap. And, and this was back when 401ks were more expensive to administer. Well, since then, and that's been probably the last 10 years, that market, the 401k market has dropped in terms of its cost. There's much more accessible plans that have like regular monthly fees that are pretty reasonable versus large upfront fees. And so, you know, it's a great option. But what, and I say this is more uh, probably attorneys who've been practicing for a while, they never changed because they just like, well, I got it set up, it's fine, right? And then what ends up happening is that they're, maybe they're doing really well now, but all that, they know that simple, which was fine then, is still putting in just a little bit. Whereas if they have 401k, they could have been saving significantly more because of the difference in the platforms. And so you don't want to get stuck in your rut, which is where if you have someone guiding you and counseling you on these things, they're going to push back a little bit and say, well, why do you still have a symbol? What are you doing for health insurance? What are, how are you compensating your employees? Like you talk through the models, you know, paying for an employee is not as easy as just, I pay them 15 bucks an hour, therefore I'm done. There's, you know, 15 bucks an hour plus payroll taxes, plus if you got to give them training or licensure or um, health insurance, benefits, all these things add up and, and it gets much more expensive. You know, well, that, that goes into the next thing. I actually, well, you're, you, it's, I, I swear I didn't give you any of the talking points or any of my uh, outline stuff that I wanted to talk about. But me knowing this, you, Stephen. On the, yeah, it's, it's on the same plane here. So when you set up your corporate entity, how do you want, when you've 
outsourced or got it set up, your books and stuff like that, and you've brought on some people, not everybody's a one one man shop. Mm-hmm. And when you bring on people, there's so many other large entities or just the understanding of the world we live in now that certain benefits should be, you know, given and mandatory or or expected in certain types of employment. So how does a small company one offer those and then also compete with like mega corporations who have these gargantuan plans and all this sort of stuff that really look enticing but yet maybe the big company type of thing isn't really for the employees maybe they do like the smaller thing but yet like there seems like to be a tug of war so how does that small business owner set up those type of things and then also compete so i think there's like two benefits that are in particular kind of like table stakes at this point and that's retirement and health insurance now you don't need to have always dental and vision but basic health insurance and some sort of retirement plan are kind of the, the base level benefits. You don't have to have a foosball table, a kegerator, and, you know, in-house lunches that come in every day and feed you. But those two are pretty critical. And people will um, look at those and they'll negotiate with you on compensation depending on what those are. So if you have a terrible health insurance plan, and you say, well, yeah, I only pay for the employee and uh, we don't do anything for spouse and family and all that because that's too expensive. So you just have to pay for that. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to say, OK, well, my old job, I was making X dollars and my health insurance benefits were better. So now I need to make X plus 500 a month. And so I'm going to negotiate to that. So you're going to pay more Social Security, Medicare on those things. You're going to pay all these costs more. And now your baseline salary is higher, which means your net raises are based on that and other things. And so because you wanted to cheap out on the plan, you end up paying someone more anyway. So can a small business owner get plans that are, yeah. um, I guess, not that they're at a level that, are, that is good for the employee, but then also for the, the bottom line and, and expenditures of the business owner, right? Because they're, they're monitoring what they're taking in to run the ship, but then they also want to make sure that they're treating their, their employees well. So can a, a small firm do something like that? It seems like it's set up almost against them. Well, a small firm has less options, and that's just being realistic, right? So when you have a health insurance plan, the more lives on it, the better. Right. So you have more options if you have a large plan because you can have different plan levels. You can aggregate like if you're a large employer. You can kind of say, hey, this is how much uh, a gold HMO plan is going to cost. It's not based on age. It's based on that plan. When you're in a small employer plan, which most most business in the U.S. would probably fit in that. You need at least two people. Right. And often it becomes the owner and one employee. But it's often age-based. So if you have younger people, they cost less than older people do. That's just reality. Um, you know, if you understand what you're getting into, you can do one of two things. You can like cover a percentage of that plan's cost. So that's a variable though. But now because if you hire someone who's 50 versus someone who's 30, the premium is just different. So if you're even covering half of it, this person's premium cost is more than this person's because there is um, an, you know, age banding when it comes to health insurance. Now, if you have, you can also then say, we will cover this amount every month, maybe $300 a month. So you know that the minimum you're going to pay or the maximum you're going to pay is $300 a month for that employee. So you're looking at every year, $3,600 is your part. The employee then has choices. You may be able to say, I want a better plan because of my health circumstances. So I will pay the premium differential. Maybe I want the cheapest plan because I want to pay as little as possible and I don't have a doctor very often. Great. Maybe I'll have to pay 20 bucks a month once the employer pays for their part. You can have a competitive plan still. However, you have to get away from saying, I don't want to pay for money for people because it costs me something. Anyone costs you something. If you, you can hire... Um, some person, a body who can do a job for you and they're not going to be high performers. And that will cost you much more than if you sit through $3,600 a year at someone's health insurance. Um, Same with retirement is that retirement savings, there's kind of a, you know, 
a no-brainer at this point. But they've also incentivized, the government has incentivized it by providing tax credits for new start plans for 401ks. And so if you make that available to people, you can almost get the thing paid for. And there's also tax benefits for the type of uh, entity mm-hmm. that you've, you've structured yourself as, right? Because I've heard um, in my previous life, something called SEP contributions, right? And so there's certain benefits that go with that and yeah. how they're organized. So it's a lot closer for you to do than it is, oh, I don't make enough or that's too much money, right? It's, it seems a more real, real type of thing to be happening rather than only for the big for the big I guy. would say the businesses that I have seen in the last couple of years thrive are the ones who are willing to invest in their employees and take care of them, right? So they, they have low turnover, they have high producing engaged employees, and it's because they'll pay for health insurance, they'll pay for retirement benefit, and they will not skimp out on that stuff. And not like they're going hog wild and say, well, I'm going to do a 20% match to your 401k and I pay 100% of family coverage for everybody who works here. But they have a good a good plan. They pay people, a, you know, Yeah, and it's not and it's not just crazy like oh we're just going to pay you all sorts of cash. It, no, it's the employer it's employees need more than that. Yeah, I mean the those real other benefits are real and they and often they add up without the employee knowing so it kind of makes I'm I'm a big fan of a um, kind of an all-in costing, whenever you have employees is you actually tell them how much they cost and you show how much they invest and say, you know, we, we uh, match for your 401k. That's X dollars. Uh, we pay for this much of your health insurance. It's X dollars. And so you kind of add, oh, we pay for all your licensure. These are things you don't have to pay for that we pay for. And you get to a total comp number. If you do that, people understand that they are more than just their salary. And they usually understand that, yeah, you're investing in them and you're, you're, you're covering things for them. And I think that's really important to do. The people who I see have struggling with staffing are the ones who are like, I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to pay for them to get training. I don't want to pay them to have health insurance because, man, that's just expensive. I don't want to deal with that. But they are very big into paying things for themselves. And so they end up kind of hoarding the cash and they, or they spend on lifestyle and then what ends up happening is they have huge tax bills and they're complaining about those all the time. But their staff is always churning because who wants to work for some tyrant who's just there to just grind you? And then, you know, you're done. And then they don't give you health insurance. You have no retirement account while they're like sticking hundreds of thousands of dollars in their account because they're like basically pinching every penny to, to self-benefit. But then those people also have the most anxiety because they're losing their employees all the time. They're swapping out people. They're stressed more than you can imagine. And relatively speaking, that amount that they would have to, or not have to, that amount that they would elect to to cover for the employees is probably a lot easier than to worry about the big whopper of a tax bill that's coming. Well, and honestly, there's times where if you had, if you were structured well, I've had situations where the the benefit to the employer, so the let's say the owner of the practice, and this could be a law firm practice, by picking the right retirement account, the tax savings from from self beneficial things. So let's say it's a really good, a decent retirement match and everything. That tax savings often covers the benefit to the employees in in a lot of fashions. And so you're like, okay, so not only the employees get something nice, the tax savings for me getting something nice works out to pay for that. The whole reason why I wanted you on was to make it more of a reality that these are options for small businesses. And, you know, we've always, we hear, you know, every two years that small businesses, the number one employers in, in, in the nation, because we always hear it in the political cycle, but it's, it's, it's true. Yeah, most businesses yeah, are your constituents, right? Exactly. And most people are in small businesses, right? Because that's what a small business is up to a hundred people. Is that what the, I think it depends on who you talk to about. It depends, right? I hate that. I hate that answer. But uh, but really, their their small businesses can still be a good amount of physical bodies there, and they have these options. But at the last, when we're talking about the benefits, when you mentioned earlier that you're trying to uh, or you're, you're studying for the Kingdom Advisors designation um, as part of your uh, your repertoire of uh, ones that you have, that kind of resonates with me because here at Campbell, we take pride in that the notion of leading with purpose Mm -hmm. and having the kingdom advisors and it being a biblical aspect of doing 
financial planning and stuff like that. That sounds like leading with purpose. So how could small businesses lead with purpose in the financial realm? Because they're not big corporations that are saying, we wrote such and such massive check to whatever nonprofit. But if you if you lead with purpose, you're and treat your employees well with these benefits and then do other stuff, it creates this atmosphere that employees want to to, to be at, that employees want to, to work there. So how do, how do small businesses, in essence, get to that point? So I'm a strong advocate for being a good steward. And that's in the Bible a lot, as good stewardship. But what that does not necessarily mean is that you are like hoarding by any means. It's you are using what you've been blessed with to like benefit the kingdom, others. Ultimately, it could be yourself, but it's not your self first. And so where I think a, a business owner can have some intent, intent and purpose behind what they're doing is saying, what do you want to do with, do you want to be a really high quality employer? And that's being a good steward of people. And so how you do that? You invest in people, you, you train them well. You give them the ability to participate in things. You maybe do charitable matches. You, do, you make an environment that is where they feel like they're going to thrive, where they're going to have purpose, where they're helping others. And that that is just not a job. It's a calling. So if you, you can do that really well in a small business environment. And frankly, I think that's one of the big delineators from a large enterprise, whether you call it big law or big accounting or whatever. Um, in those environments, there is more defined corporate culture, right? And there's a lot of money behind it. So there's like training programs and whatever. Um, and that's fine. But there's nothing like having someone where you literally help them in a situation and they're like crying in your office with tears of joy because you helped them with something that was really stressing them out. And so I think there's a lot of small firms that can change and, and adapt things pretty easily. Uh, to accommodate their teams and and really create something they want to be proud of. Um, I think that that's the other thing is, especially if you decide to go open your own practice, you can define it the way you want to. And you can think of all the jobs you hated. <laughs> Not to say you want to create something that was the opposite of what they did, but there's going to be certain things that resonated with you that were not right. And you will never do that as your as a practitioner. You will say, no, I will never do uh, hourly billing because I feel like that's the wrong thing for the client. I want to do a, a good job. I want to agree that up front. I don't want my clients to think that I'm going to throw in their bill at them. And maybe it's, I don't want to ride people based on billable hours that they have. I don't want to, I want a quality environment. I want to listen to my employees. I want to hear them like provide inputs onto how to make things better. And that's all stuff you can do is you can have a lot of purpose, purposeful intent around taking care of people. And that can be your internal people, your client, your, your, your um, employees, can be your external clients. Um, there's always financial. And that's like maybe you want to be th th philanthropic, which means you are giving. It doesn't mean you have to be broadcasting it to everyone that you give tens of thousands of dollars to this organization, but you can use that to produce revenue that then is an excess and abundance of what you need to live on and you can be abundant in giving and whether it's to a church or to a mission that you believe in or a nonprofit that you're engaged with or in some sort of community involvement where you're like you know part of our service as a as a law firm is to help this environment so we're going to supplement that with charitable giving that supports people in this world maybe it's with homelessness or something that would feed maybe it's fed into yours uh, maybe investing in other people. Those are yeah, maybe you're maybe you do a lot of custody cases, and you want to do something that helps children development or something like that. Sports league stuff like that. It seems like that these things are very doable, and they don't have to be these large, epic organizations that have a whole bunch of cash, you know, at their disposal that small businesses don't have. It's it's doable. But see, most most organizations really don't need million dollar checks, right? They need manpower hours. They need manpower, they need connectivity, they need even five, ten thousand dollars makes a huge impact. And so I think that's where um, these like large entities are throwing out big numbers. I mean, I remember it when I was in college many moons ago, it was like 
the big accounting firms are the ones who threw um, professorships or whatever they would like over oh, those KPMG professor of the year. I don't know, but they, but that was fine. Except for like, I, I was at Butler company in Albuquerque, New Mexico. wasn't going to fund a, 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 a professor. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have that kind of money, but what I did do though, is I participated in their, their like accounting oversight committee where they talked about like they had the professionals involved there. I could help with payoff side. I could go and speak at, classrooms and, and like offer internships and you can have something like that, which provides a different experience, but it can be one that can really connect. And even if someone doesn't, like we have an intern right now and whether or not he came to work with us long-term or not, I mean, I'm providing an opportunity. We're providing someone at CookWealth an opportunity to grow and learn. And that's a great thing if you can do that. I mean, I'm sure most law firms would love to have an intern who would be there to help do some something and learn something in the process. It'd be great. Which is great to, to hear that, like, again, these all these things are doable. And it's like, de- it's getting rid of those myths that, yes, starting your own business is hard and its own relative thing, but you can do these things that can get you the right people to work with you on the employment front and then also on people that you partner with to make sure that you're doing business right from corporate structure to taxes to outsourcing the things that you don't need to be wasting your time on um, when you can actually be doing the job that you're trying to do. Well, and then when you think about too, is like you want to be able to sleep at night that this is the kind of firm, if you decide to make your own firm, it's a firm you want to be able to sleep at night knowing that you're doing a good job and that you're proud of that. Yeah, I bet a lot of people don't understand what it is of a royalty to to sleep well at night, knowing that you have something good going and it's within grasp and it's not something that is just once in a lifetime rare type of thing. You can set up a good small organization that does right um, for you and for your employees and for your community. Um, And Jason, thank you so much for uh, spending your time uh, with us today. I do want to uh, mention something. You are on a committee um, for the North Carolina Bar Association. And uh, shockingly, what is that committee? It's a small firm technology section of the the North Carolina Bar. And so as a student, as a member, you you get a free section. In each section, you can go into bankruptcy, you can go into real estate, whatever. Um, So you have a technical specialty. This uh, specific practice area helps small firm practitioners, whether they're like a sole proprietor, solopreneur, up to a small firm, kind of maybe a couple employees, maybe a partner, provides resources, uh, connectivity with each other to meet some of your peers. And it's a really, really valuable um, resource. Uh, There's a C, we do a CLE every year Um, that has been disrupted a little bit with COVID, but that's all back into the regular sort of things now. So some good resources to just connect with each other. Um, and so that's, that's through the bar association. That's just one of the other sections you can add on to your membership. It sounds like you are practicing what you are preaching. Uh, so thank you for your uh, service on that committee. Cause I know it'll help fellow colleagues, if not uh, myself, if we need to dabble into the small firm uh, resources there. Lastly, to wrap this whole thing, what does leading per- with purpose actually mean to you? So I feel like lean with purpose is saying that you are being an, an advocate for others. You are, you are providing a vision of what you see something as being, and you're going to help bring people along with that. And I think that can be clients. It can be employees, it can be your family. Um, but by having that vision and at least taking the time to figure out what you really want to like, intentionally do with your life, um, whether it's prayerfully or through other means, but like, I think that's where if you have a kind of where you're aiming and you're going to show people how to get there. And I think that it is one of those things that if you've got it, you'll, you'll know it. It's sometimes hard to find. Um, and you may have to go through a kind of roundabout path to get there, but, um, that's okay. And I think that's, I mean, I've had a 20 year career that is not what I expected when I came out of college. And it's not been linear, right? It's been far from linear. But but the part of that is, is that the journey helps educate that vision. And even like now, 
uh, you know, I, I was a partner in a CPA firm and that I had stuff that happened in there that I learned from that, that changed how I do things now at Cook Wealth that has made me better, but also has given me clarity. And so I think that that path is good, but like that intention of like, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to roll with it. I'm going to really aim for where I want to go and I'm going to belong. I'm going to really hone in on that. And I can say no, if something doesn't fit that vision. And that is a very, those no's are very powerful. It's hard to say no, because especially you say, I'll take another client, I'll take another this, I'll do this. But sometimes you have to safeguard your boundaries and say, no, this is a fit in the vision. I'm not going to do it. Jason, thank you very much for being here. Uh, how do people get a hold of you if they are so inclined? Uh, you can go check our website, cookwealth.com. You can call us at 919-784-9100 uh, or you can email me directly. It's jdeshays at cookwealth.com. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate you. Thanks, Stephen. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.